welcome to the Possibility Podcast with me, your host, Sarah Knight. In this podcast, I explore what it means to be alive on the earth today amidst our climate crisis. And for me, that means getting very curious about all of this possibility that we carry around inside us. What if we could harness this and put it towards finding balance again and creating a better, more sustainable future? Hello and welcome to another session of the Possibility Podcast. Uh, Today I am so excited to be speaking with Dr. Susan Eyrick. Susan is a conservationist, spiritual ecologist, and practical visionary with a background in psychology, biology, and decades of experience as a writer, speaker, and educator. Um, More than 20 years ago, she founded the Earth Fire Institute, a unique wildlife sanctuary and retreat center located on 40 acres just west of Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. And here she continues to work passionately to explore the potential for shifting human perception when we can see through non-human eyes. Susan has been in my awareness for many years now, uh, and she's going to learn through this conversation um, how awe-inspiring, really, she has been for me, personally inspiring, Um, as someone that I've held as a standard to which I can aim for in my own passion and uh, commitment to bringing together science and spirit for the purpose of supporting our rightful relationship with the world around us. And Susan is a leader here. Um, I'm so happy to be talking to you today, Susan. Thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. It's my favorite things to talk about. Yeah. Certainly, it is a a labor of devotion and passion in which you are engaged. So can you tell me, please, for the people that are listening, what is the focus of the work that you do at Earthfire? There's such an incredible amount of beauty available to us. Uh, Profound connection, joy, rich potential lives. And I see it as such a tragedy that we don't see it, don't, a tragedy for us and a tragedy for the rest of life that we destroy sometimes without realizing it, sometimes wantonly. And it's such a waste and a tragedy because it's a complete lose-lose. We're not happy anyway with all the money we make and the way it's going. So we're destroying the earth and we're not even happy. So my major focus is to try and... Uh, indicate to people what's possible. There's a tree right outside my door that I often look at and I admire it. And I often have the feeling that when I tell it it's beautiful, doesn't matter if it's words or not, that it on some level feels that energy and responds and makes itself even more beautiful and that I feel that response and then I begin to go to a place that's very beautiful and in that interconnection whenever you look at any living thing in that I shouldn't say thing any living 
creation or creature or being. Um, and you spend enough time with it and you go into that kind of place, there's an energetic flow that happens back and forth. And the actual joy and beauty is in that energetic exchange. It's almost like a fertilization where we're fertilizing one another, helping each other uh, energetically glow and grow. And it's the same with a tree. It's the same with a dog or a cat or a bear. It doesn't matter because it's all an expression of life, a unique expression of life, but all of them are life forms. So if I can somehow share that with people so that we can move a little more in that direction, our, from a practical view, our immune system will be better. From a spiritual view, we'll be happier. From a practical view, the earth will live <laughs> a lot better. So my entire focus is on trying to share that awareness. And because we have animals here, I started with a tree, but actually... We're a wildlife sanctuary, and animals are the easiest portal, mostly. Some people have objected loudly and said, no, plants are. Um, but for most people, animals are the easiest portal into the mystery, into connection, connecting deeply with something outside ourselves. The reason we love our dogs and cats is something outside ourselves, um, not that ourselves aren't, en ourselves aren't enough. We, we need to feel our connection to something larger. And as you begin to connect with wild animals, here at Earthfire it's possible because they're comfortable with and like humans. Um, you begin to get, a, oh, my goodness. A bear is an individual because we have five of them now. We had six, we have five, each totally unique. And people begin to see the uniqueness of each life form each bear being incredibly different, each wolf, each coyote. And so one aspect is understanding the individuality, each as a unique expression of the life force. Um, that's a, that seems to strike people very strongly. And then the other is when you connect to one bear or wolf, just like when you connect to a, a cat or a dog, suddenly you have a different feeling about all cats or all dogs. It sort of spreads into that. And when you have a connection with a bear or a wolf, it spreads into an awareness of bareness in general, and you feel differently about them. And then from there, it goes out to all wildlife. And from there to maybe, maybe forests are remarkable and, re and want to relate to you too, in a way. So it's, they're a portal into a larger way of thinking. Yes. I love the language that you use and it's, you know, where you started off talking about this abundance that surrounds us and yet we are so oblivious to it and don't even realize what we're missing, living under this false idea that somehow we have mostly accepted that we are happy. Um, because we're adhering to whatever the, the principles and the rules are of our society and doing the thing one foot in front of the other and one thing leads to the next down this predetermined kind of pathway and completely missing this abundance that you speak of. And I love how you put it down to that that magic, that new thing that is created between two beings when they come together in connection. And as you say, the the portal 
You know, whether it's the tree or the bear or the bumblebee or any one of them is a portal to that thing that is that is created, that energy that happens between two beings that is beautiful. Susan, is this something that you were that, and this is something that I said to you in my, in my email to you when I was just trying to convey briefly, but my email was far too long, why I was so excited to talk to you. It's that the words that you use help me feel what you're expressing. But what I feel when, when I listen to you speak now, and when I, when I read your, your writings, when I listen to your interviews, is that is what you say without words, the, all the nonverbal ways that you are communicating what you understand so deeply, this, this, this thing that happens this place between our, our, our bodies and our spirits, this magic of creation and, and connection, um, the complete lack of separation that you seem to just, it's like you just know it. You have such an embodied understanding of it. Were you born with this, what you feel and what you so passionately try to share with other people? Were you born like that? Was that something or did you learn it? Did you cultivate it and develop it? Both. I think I was born with it. I remember having an argument with my mother, not that she was arguing back with me. I don't know, I was six years old, maybe. And I asked her why animals didn't have the same rights as people. It didn't make sense to me. So it was just always there in that sense. But what happened to me is what happened to most of us. We get waylaid along the way. We have to listen to society. We've got these expectations, the expectations for women that are particularly onerous in a lot of ways. Um, I had to, I went to a lot of really good therapy. One thing that might be a little different is that I went, to one after another after another and walked out on most of them because I knew they didn't know what I needed to know. And then I was lucky enough at number 13 to say, he knows something I need to know. And um, he had no formal degrees. He just knew something <laughs> and was able to convey it. And I spent a lot of time with him um, undoing uh, the, the disconnections. I shouldn't say disconnection. I was never disconnected from nature. The blocks to the flow of deeply connecting. Um, it was instinctively always there. It just had to be unblocked. Mm. I think that might be true for many of us. And the more I unblocked, the more I could cultivate it. So what one pathway that I went was to get a degree in psychology, partly because I really liked the work <laughs> um, when I saw what it could do, but it wasn't regular psychology. It wasn't the stuff you learn in school and books. That I got my PhD, but to me, a lot of that was truly junk or, or worse, misleading and narrowing. Um, but I got it because it was there and it was easy and that's another whole story. Um, 
but I really love working with humans and uh, working so that we all can bloom and grow. So that was one passageway. But when I thought about it more, I realized that my larger path, so that's a huge passion and always interested in how we're connected to the rest of life. But then somewhere, there were various life crises and somewhere along the line, I said, you know what I really loved the most is my connection with nature. So then I, I still do psychology. I still see a few clients only word of mouth just because I love it so much. It's so, so rich um, and interweave our human uh, talents, creativities, and, and issues <laughs> um, interweave that with how, how we see nature and bring it to try to help us connect with nature better. But in there, I realized that my first thing was nature, and then I uh, stopped any formal, well, I still taught at universities a bit, but uh, started, uh, worked at a nature center and just stayed with nature ever since. And that's a long answer to your question of, was it cultivated? So once I made that decision to switch back to, to nature, um, it's been a process of cultivating ever since. I mean, my stacks of books, the people I talk with, the animals, everything. And one of the most beautiful things about getting older is your life gets richer and richer. You get to see more and more. You get to understand more and more. It's an actual pleasure. Mm. Yes. Susan, the, I see the same thing myself in my energy medicine practice, you know, that, that you speak of blocks and, and that's what it is. You know, we all are, are, are born with, with, with flow and, and the ability to progress and grow and exact we get we get blocked it's just the stuff that gets in the way in your you know through your work with psychology your own work and exploring this in yourself and what you've been doing since at Earthfire, are there kind of collective blocks are there common blocks that we share in regards to connecting more deeply with the, the natural world a couple of things. One is the impact of uh, intergenerational trauma. I think there's a rare human being, if any, who has not inherited some level of trauma from parents, grandparents. I mean, when you just, just all of the human history is just one of violence. Um, and animals, not so. Um, for some reason, that's been our history. And I think that impacts us enormously, more than we realize. And there's very interesting recent work on intergenerational trauma. The good part of it is, there's also really exciting new work on how to overcome PTSD, how to tune into intergenerational, intergenerational trauma, how to heal it. So that's the, that's the good part. So that's one source of luck. Another is, and I don't understand this, I'd love to know if you or anyone else does, why one part of the population feels it has to oppress and dominate the other. Mm. is more male than, than female, all through history, dominance and oppression, but um, females contribute too. And then, of course, they're wonderful males as well. Um, 
I don't know if some of it's evolutionary, but the oppression then comes through a cultural filter and you're not allowed the freedom to be or to think or to connect. And there's all this pressure in order to become something, what your parents want, what your school wants, what the cultures want. Some of us have better families than others and give us more freedom, but still we're, we're enormously constrained in how we, how we can be. And I don't know the source of that. I know the impact of it on myself and others. And w with support from other humans, even a small group, we can overcome it and we can be fully ourselves in small groups. But, you know, we, we murder people who think freely all through history. And I don't know the source of that fear, the source of that oppression. Yeah. I've heard you, you know, and you've indicated this already in, 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 at the start of our conversation. And I've heard you speak and felt your words again. Um, and that, that, that lack of separation, that equality, that the, the zero desire that you have to see hierarchy, see any one being as having more rights or being better than or being more special than um, is part of what makes your work so powerful and you such a powerful communicator. I heard you say in one of your interviews that... Um, you know, people sometimes ask, say to you, wow, the animals at Earthfire are so special. And what you said to that in reply was, well, yes, they're special, but they're no more special than any other animal anywhere else. You know, they're just allowing you to connect with them here and so that you're able to connect with their specialness. And so can you tell me what a little bit more about what how what what kind of animals do you have at Earthfire? How are people able to interact with them and what happens to people when they do? So we have animals that are native to the Yellowstone to Yukon Wildlife Corridor, which is a wild corridor that runs from southern Wyoming up to the Yukon, basically along the ridge of uh, the Rocky Mountains. So the type of animals we have are black bears, grizzly bears, mountain lions, foxes, badgers, there's a, other places too, um, wolves. So the animals are all native. That's the type we have. What happens to people is a mystery to me sometimes. We had one mother who went to a large amount of trouble to bring her 16-year-old difficult, troubled teenage son quite a several-hour drive because he loved wolves so much and she thought it would help him and he met the wolves but he fell completely in love with a little fox we had and that fox was very shy and he would stand outside the enclosure where we, it was at the time and the fox would come towards him and he would come closer to the fox and something happened between the two of them And Sauce will fall hopelessly in love with Bluebell or Bison. And there's no predicting. And, the, and people themselves can't predict what's going to happen. And I can't predict it. We had a huge football player who was 
nickname was something like Mad Dog, um, who came to visit. And we had this beautiful little coyote called Fairy Tale, so delicate and so afraid and so brave. She was terrified of everything and yet she still tried to face things. My feeling is that she somehow had PTSD or was carrying PTSD from generations of how we persecute them, whatever. We have other coyotes who aren't like that at all, just ebullient and out there. But she was that way and he was completely fascinated with this huge six foot five guy, tough, completely fell in love with her. And she responded. I mean, there's all he could talk about after he left. So there's no, and then this one was um, a little more common. Like we had a, a three-legged deer um, and that deer was found at the side of the road with its umbilical cord still attached. So, and a woman drive, drove by on the highway, saw it and stopped and picked it up. Both front legs were broken, its head was gashed. Um, and she took it to an emergency physician and started to raise it and then realized she couldn't keep it. It, it lost one of its legs and she brought it to us. And that little deer had only known humans and a dog actually, <laughs> and that was his whole life. And he was um, in an area where it was one of the first things people would see when they'd come up and they would stop short. And this was an ordinary, quote unquote ordinary because no life form is ordinary. But we consider a white-tailed deer ordinary, just a regular deer, right? And they would stop short and he would emanate a glow. And I swear that people would glow. That's where I first started to get the idea more, more um, solid. I think I always felt it. And they would glow and people couldn't tear themselves away. And I realized I, how I interpreted it was deer are herd animals and humans were his herd. And he would send out this invitation from his heart to connect to his herd and people would feel it and respond. And then I would wonder, is that what it's like to live in a herd? And is that something that could ideally be possible for us as humans? In small groups anyway. And then we have a grizzly bear, Teton Totem. I think that's on my website, it's part of the story anyway. And he became unable to walk, essentially paralyzed. And through various, a long, very strange story, he became unparalyzed over one winter. And he was brilliant, but grizzly bears are brilliant. Um, and he was healed through energy medicine. Western medicine couldn't do it. And he came out of hibernation. So he was slowly able to walk. And when he went back into hibernation, he was able to walk. And we didn't know how he'd be when he came out. This is several years ago. 
um, when he came out, he was still able to walk and he's still able to walk now. And he's still able to stand his whole 1,000 pounds on top of that same spine that was paralyzed before, or at least non-functional. And he came out different. He came out sweeter. And then I noticed when people came to visit, not everybody, but a lot of people could not tear themselves away. You have to practically pick them up and carry them away. <laughs> they couldn't tear themselves away from him. And some people would just burst into tears. And they couldn't explain it, except they just had this enormously powerful experience. They didn't really know why they're crying. It really didn't really know what it was. But he had communicated something. And when there's a, there's a for lack of a better word, um, there's a, a profound kindness in his eyes. And when I talk about these things, I try as much as possible to make them um, say what I saw rather than add my own stuff to it. Though if I do, I say, okay, this is what I think. But it just happened. And then it just happened again. Once I thought, okay, we get someone who's maybe over-emotional or, or ooey-pooey about animals in a way. But no, time after time after time, it just stuck that way. And then there's a story of Huckleberry. Am I telling you too many stories? Oh, no. <laughs> They're very good stories. And then there's Huckleberry Bear, Bear Black Bear who grew up with his brother. They were, we, we got them together from a woman who didn't want them anymore. And they were together for many years and they'd sleep in each other's arms in the winter. And then Major Bear got ill and no matter what we did, we couldn't figure it out. We took him to all kinds of special hospitals, but he eventually passed away. And then we had a retreat with some students, art students from California. And one of them, for some reason, was drawn to Huckleberry and sat in front of his enclosure. I think she was thinking about whether she wanted to draw him or not. And then suddenly she realized, I'm really sad. And then she said, she found tears running down her face. She said, this is weird. And this is a, a person who wasn't really specially tuned to animals or anything. She was an artist from L.A. And then she heard in her mind, I miss my brother. And she said, this is really weird because I don't have a brother. She didn't. It was too far out for her to make the connection yet. And then that night, around a campfire, when you dare say things that you might not during the day, talk about flow and things we don't dare, when I stopped from, she said, um, did, did, did Huckleberry have a brother? And when we said yes, she just turned practically white. She said, the idea of that type of connection that was possible just blew her away. Wow. So those are some of the interactions. Susan, I... I mean, those interactions must be profoundly transformative for the individuals that experience them. 
Um, but I know, you know, because of the the mission statement of Earth Fire, and again, you've already said this that you're, you know, this you're you didn't set up simply to give people interesting experiences that they get to write home about. You know, this this intention to to really connect with the non-human world and to see through non-human eyes you have a much bigger vision for the for the potential of that can you um could you share with me you know in the highest possibility you know what could be possible what is your the potential vision that you hold for humanity if should we actually be able to experience our natural world in this deep way that you experience it? Well, apart from the sheer joy of being alive, what, what one uh, Qigong master called happy for no reason. Um, as a simple uh, celebration of this, the tremendous gift we're given of being alive, to start just with that. I'm going to say justice, not justice. Like, and this this rich, profound sense of connection and being one with. From there, I don't know. I have ideas um, that perhaps were we humans are on an evolutionary journey to understand ourselves, maybe even as our acute intelligence and ability to look at ourselves, which sometimes we use <laughs> and sometimes not, um, the universe beginning to become conscious of itself and learn about itself. Another possibility is that we're all evolving on this journey, not just humans, but animals each in their own way as well, that there's somehow an increasing awareness um, there are all these different kinds of consciousnesses. There's, there's a sentience in octopus, and there's a sentience in dolphins, and there's a sentience in crows, and there's a sentience in apes, that is all over the place. And that this is, that we're part of this huge, incredible journey to ever more awareness. And where that would lead, I don't know, except it's a joy to become when I talked earlier about the pleasure of getting older, it's like a pleasure of increasing awareness. And the great meditation masters and all of are, it's like we're, we're hungry and yearning and seeking to understand something at a very deep level. Um, and where that will lead, I don't know. Yeah, it's listening to you talk. I mean, it's... <laughs> you say it, it seems like such an obvious answer. I mean, let's just start off with remembering the sheer joy of being alive. And the incredible gift of being alive. Yes. Joy and gift and gratitude. In, in Ayurveda, I loved when I learned this. A friend of mine is an Ayurvedic practitioner. And in Ayurveda, they recognize the, the physical body, the mental body, the emotional body, the spiritual body and the bliss body <laughs> where energy is just experiencing the joy of being energy. 
and I love, I'm so, I'm, I'm, I can't say I'm in a constant state of bliss, nowhere near it, but I have little snippets of it, you know, I've definitely stepped into it and can access it. And that makes so much sense to me. And so what you say, yes, the sheer joy of being alive, like, all of this other that we have created actually creates layers of separation between us and just the sheer joy of existence. Of our animal bodies. Of our animal bodies. We spend our time up here. Yeah. So, you know, for anybody that's listening that maybe already has a connection with non-human beings, the animal or the plant kingdoms, the mineral kingdom, you know, rivers certainly to me have a soul, a spirit. Something that, that I'm curious about is the, the council of all beings. Could you, could you explain the concept of that a little bit and whether is that something that you do at Earthfire that you've participated in how that is that something that anybody can can organize for their community all of the above mm -hmm. the idea was originated by Joanna Macy and John Seed and you can look it up Council of All Beings and see their incredible work and the idea was to have a circle where after profound meditation each person comes together in a circle, in a council, to represent a being that spoke to them. It's difficult because often we lay our own trips on it. And for some people, it seems really far out. Can, can a tree choose me to speak through me? That's up to each individual to decide. But what happens if you pick a particular being and if there's no real mystical anything about the being having chosen you to speak about the state of, of birds or lions or anything. Just the sheer fact of your spending time trying to feel that being in order to bring it to this council makes a profound shift in consciousness. So you don't have to go too far out to have this be a very lovely practice. So then people come together in a, in a circle after meditation and preparation, and they make a mask of their being so that you don't see the person in the council. You only see the various masks. And then you speak through the mask of what that being wants to share. Wow. And it can be really powerful. Masks in general are powerful things. It can be really very powerful. And it's a council of all beings. What's happening? What do we need to do? What does Lion want to say? What does, what does Ant contribute? Um, so yes, I've participated in them. Um, I've, we've done one here. Eventually, I would like to do more when we're set up in, in a possibility. We tried doing it online because obviously it's not ideal, but it may be well better than nothing. And it really worked quite nicely. Um, we stopped it temporarily because it, it has to work if you have a certain number of people. If you have two or three people, it doesn't work. And our work, we don't have a huge audience. Um, when we're able to get a larger audience, I'd like to try it again online. 
um, because each time you do it, you learn better and how to help people get deeper. Hmm. It's a wonderful practice, a wonderful, just an idea. It's a beautiful idea. And it's interesting because as you're, you know, my next question was going to be, well, what about for, you know, for people that don't have access to other people to do this with, or maybe don't have access to, um, to nature, to animals, to, to plants and to trees, but even just the act of making a practice of it, of sitting in, 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 in emotional communication, tuning in or intellectually tuning in, learning about something, feeling into something. And that I really like what you share there that, you know, it's important as best as we can to not put our, um, our own judgment or our own reference point on whoever it is that we're communicating for to really try to be that spokesperson for whatever the being is that is wanting to communicate through us. And yet I, I, I believe if I understand the way that you work, that you do very much see a role for yes, for the objective science, but also for the, for the heart and for the emotions and for the, the part that just wants to stand up and say, hey, this isn't right. <laughs> like, I don't know, whatever the science says, you at six years old, this just isn't right. How do you, how do you, I mean, you have, you wear both those hats. You very much combine your, you know, you're trained in, in, in science. You, you sit so clearly with spirit. You welcome energy medicine practitioners, people from all walks of life to, to earth fire. What is the role? How can we include our scientific ability and our ability to use our intellect to ask questions and to understand and our and our emotionality and our spirituality? How can we bring those three things together? Is it possible? It's completely possible. People have done it through all history. How is another another question meditation practice is one attempt and standard meditation in buddhism isn't a religion it's a science it's considered the science of the mind and they've come as close as i've seen in terms of trying to really understand how to reach these other states of compassion and and awareness through meditation not all of us have the temperament for that, but it's one enormously rich and thought-through tradition of how to bring those things together. Another way is really very simple and very difficult for us, and it's to simply spend time with another being, to sit under a tree and visit that same tree year after year, to spend time with plants, spend time with an animal. We know this sometimes when we have a uh, long-term relationship with our dog or cat, it gets richer and deeper. And we begin to see things differently. So just spending time with the intent of just being and listening, but not with one's ears or one's mind. And these things require practice because of how we're torn away from it and support 
and there are many false teachers and they don't necessarily mean to be false but they themselves haven't worked on themselves enough and then they go out and try to teach things and it leaves people questioning their own inner wisdom because they're going to others for it one of the reasons i like the buddhist practices is because the buddha said be a lamp unto yourself the ability to each think for ourselves we each i firmly believe we each have it within us and to try and constantly try and find it from someone else we sometimes pay money for um not that there aren't incredible teachers that we should go and study with but it's important to be very discerning and ideally feel somewhere in our bones that this is right like with that one therapist i finally went with after 45 minutes i said he knows something i want to know and it was not intellectual one of the things he taught me i think i probably did this somewhat anyway um is how much words are only the last expression and you say that when I, when you hear me talk that you feel it it's because first comes the the feeling and the intuitive knowing that comes from the body and god knows where else um about what is important to say <clears throat> and then um have it arise and then you find the words that have the meaning to convey the meaning and what we so often do is we separate words get chatter 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 and empty 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 and there's not a, a probably not even a physiological connection between the deep meaning and what we're saying we cut that and so if you're really trying to connect and communicate to someone else the words are the last element of it the least important except of course we have, they they form things <clears throat> into a precision that we can then understand so when you talk about something the idea is to be connected with it as you're speaking about it and then it gets conveyed <clears throat> conveyed and we're not taught that way we're taught to use words to obfuscate to get in the way to be polite but it really is just a tool to make precise something some deep meaning that we want to say yes thank you it's beautiful and it's i guess what i would think of as as being in in flow when the when the words are coming from that deeper exactly. felt place yeah. exactly so you know you could have said the same thing because you have that experience Well, it's interesting the joy of so again the whole time you were speaking i'm feeling what you're saying and whatever it is that we're creating in between us just just grew a little bit more with that recognition in me i think the oh, another place where we meet you know we're not going to get to go there today but just this whole possibility of another conversation another layer of connection that could unfold between us and it doesn't have to the words don't have to go there but the recognition of it lit something up in me that's good yeah i my first career was in science i have a phd in oceanography and i spent many years working in environmental education and 
then made the jump to working in healing. And for the, you know, it's all for the same reason. It was always about connection, but we're missing something here. We, what's like, why is the world falling apart? And why are we not seeing this? And why don't we, why don't we care? And so the, the, the jump for me from science to healing wasn't really so much a jump. It was just a logical step. I felt well, like, well, I'll, I'll try it this way. Except intellectually, I had learned that according to science, a certain set of rules was expected of me. And whatever went on in my healing practice wasn't allowed in science. And so it was interesting for me when I was, because for, well, and I still am working in, in both areas. And I came up when I first started working in both areas with these elaborate business plans, how to keep them both separate. You know, these elaborate websites, somebody would go to my website and they could either follow science or they could follow healing. And, you know, I spent two years twisting my head around how to separate these things and woke up one day and went, but... They're, they're not separate. I know that. And who, who am I? What am I trying to prove? And who am I trying to prove it to? But it was a big leap for me. I had to, I had to, you know, to go to a scientific conference and talk about healing it was a huge, a big risk for me. It was very vulnerable. And so for you, there is no separation. You welcome scientists and healers and everybody in between to your space. You can talk about both in the same breath. And they're both equal and valid and belong in the same place. And that, for people to feel that coming from you, that all of these, that we create these separation and we funnel ourselves down these different painful pathways, instead of allowing ourselves to be all that we are for the sheer joy of it. In fairness to us, you say we do this. No, it was done to us. We shouldn't be blaming ourselves for it. Naturally, we have a curious mind at how does this bug walk and how does it work? And wow, what a miracle that it walks. The combination is natural to us. And then education and society separates it. Mm -hmm. One of the pressures when you talk about blocks one of the greatest blocks is what science has done to us. Now, the, we face it, science orthodoxy. Great science is only observation and thinking. It's not ideological techniques. All great science has a bit of, a bit of genius in it first that's intuitive before you um, come to the trying to figure out how it works. And you, and you never lose the magic of it. Um, what we have is an incredibly impoverished ideological version of what science is. It works in practical ways in some ways. We find a vaccine. Of course, we don't figure out why we need the vaccine to begin with, but that's a whole other issue. It, it works in many practical, technological, short-term ways that Western society really admires and has unfortunately spread throughout the world. But as this separation is done to us. And so I think we should have great empathy for ourselves. All the years you wasted and all the, instead of being able to follow freely your instinct that they're both connected. And uh, the fact that I understand that vulnerability that you're talking about because social pressure can be, because we are social apes, social pressure is enormously important and powerful. We can't help it. 
and making ourselves vulnerable is, is difficult and not everyone has the courage. I shouldn't, I don't know if the courage is the right word, but um, found their way to be able to, to do that. Um, but it's really just a natural way of being. Some people are, are more tuned to under the to scientific or mathematical, say, and other people are more tuned to the magic, but we all have all those aspects. And it's just a terrible, terrible, terrible destructive education system to our humanity. Yeah. And the ability, what was um, back in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, there was a book by Theodore Rosak, Rosak and the, the chapter, which I found fascinating, called the, the Myth of Objective Consciousness. The myth that you can have an objective consciousness and just look at something and pull it apart and examine it as if you're not intimately interconnected with it. And what kind of false knowledge you get from that. And that is the essence of, of what we call science. There's a whole other variation of, of science that could be brilliant. But it's the myth that we can separate ourselves and look at. And if you do anything else, you're anthropomorphizing or you're making stuff up. And all the incredible wisdom of our bodies and the universe and nature, we, we eschew all of that because it's not scientific. It goes back to the basic reductionist model. And uh, incredibly destructive to everything, to life and to joy. It's wonderful that you saw the two halves of the brain, so to speak, the two websites, and that you brought them together. Yeah, it was with great relief that I brought those two halves together, that's for sure. <laughs> right. Well, it was the service of life. <laughs> totally. Totally. And that is that is what I'm here for. It's what I've always been here for. That's that's a wonderful knowing. Susan, on your last point, which I'm so grateful that you expressed so passionately, the incredibly destructive nature of our education system is that we, we take wonder out of things. We've kind of stolen the wow out of a lot of the way that we introduce nature and science to our children. And I think at the, the heart of what you do also is bringing people in, in connection to wonder and delight. And that very simple thing that we're so born with, we're born marveling at the natural world mm. and wowing at it. And like you said earlier, we just, you know, get rid of the blocks and then cultivate it again, start mm. practicing it, right? Wow, the magic, the wonder, the colors. It's all shaved away from us. It's education, it's culture in general. Mm. Education being a representative of culture in general. Mm. So Susan, can I ask you just to, to finish, for anyone who you know, may be wondering, well, how do I do this? You know, you suggested just go out and sit with that tree every day, or is there a practice that you could suggest to people, or is it really just that simple of just turning up? It's that simple. The more we complicate it, the more we get in our own way. Yes. 
the Buddha's teaching, I'm not a Buddhist, but I like it a lot. The Buddha's teachings themselves are very simple. And then they got elaborated into all these different rituals and all these different sects. And we do that as humans. Who was it the other day I was listening to who was saying, ah, the physicist Nassim Haramein, brilliant physicist, talking about creativity and the nature of the universe. And he said he would bring his ideas to other scientists and they would say, it's too simple. Hmm. And he would say, but that's why it's true. Hmm. If it's simple and beautiful, it's true. Hmm. So the connection is there for us to slow down enough to be there to receive the connection. Yes, to be there to receive the connection, yes. Yes. And I, I think that, yes, it's what people are recognizing all over the world now. Simple does not mean easy. Yes. But it is simple. Yeah. No. Yeah. But it also doesn't mean impossible. Yeah. We just have to work at it as humans, partly because of how our brains are so incredibly busy because they're so brilliant and almost like overdeveloped and partly because our societies don't support it. So we have to really, our biology and society's uh, pressures, it's like we have to work to overcome all of those to become who we really are and can be. Yes. And it's ultimately enormously hard work and really simple. Yes. There's, um, well, I want to uh, finish in a moment, Susan. I've taken an hour of your uh, beautiful time. Um, and there's one question I want to ask, and it's not necessarily, in fact, it's not for us to answer now. But it feels like the right time to ask the question for anyone who is listening, because ultimately that is what this, the purpose of this podcast, these conversations are about, to really spark people to think about, okay, well, what needs to change? The world is asking us to change. And how can I change? What needs to change? And the, the question I found on your website and in, in one of the conversations that you hosted. And the question is, how can we stop climate change? When we ask that, we often mean, how can we stop climate change without substantially changing how we live on the planet? And can we? And I think that is, you have pointed to the answer there. The answer is, is very simple. You know, what the world is asking of us is actually really simple. It's right in front of our noses right now. We've been quite immersed in it in this time of pause or whatever you want to call it with this pandemic. Simple, but not easy. So Susan, can you tell me for anyone that wants to get more engaged with you and your work, your website is incredible. There's so, your interviews, the people that you talk to, um, uh, your conversations are really, really 
uh, educational, mind-blowing, inspiring, uh, wowful. Um, but can people, how do people visit Earth Fire? Can they visit Earth Fire? What, you know, what sort of ways can your work be supported? Because I think an awful lot of what you do depends on, on donations. Is that right? Yes, um, bringing it down to a very practical level, the bears eat a lot. <laughs> eat up to 30,000 calories when they're going into hyperphagia to try to get ready for, um, for winter. So yes, we, we uh, subsist on donations only. We're not supported by anything else. In terms of visiting, it's obviously difficult now. We're not open to the general public because we're not a zoo. Um, when anybody comes, we want them to really spend time thinking about why they're coming, what they want to get out of it. And we do do custom visits, not many because it does, I don't want to overwhelm the animals or have them be looked at. You have to come and meet them as fellow beings and that takes time. We also do retreats. So those are the way to visit. Um, we welcome any input into the website. People are welcome to email me if they'd like. Um, join conversations, make suggestions. I think of this as a, as a fundamental community. So um, contact me if people are interested in having a conversation of some sort. Wonderful. Thank you, Susan. And it's earthfireinstitute.org, right? Yes. All one word. Earthfire named after one of our founding wolves. Earth Fire Institute, lowercase no space, dot org. Beautiful. Named after one of your founding wolves. Isn't that magical? One of the wolves that I think I heard you tell this story in another podcast was actually your kind of your connection into this world. Is that right? Yes, they completely ruined my life and did me in. <laughs> That's what love does to you, you know. Amazing. Seven wolf puppies were the founding of Earthfire. And Earthfire was one of them. Oh, beautiful. Susan, what a vision and what work. Thank you so much for what you do and for your time today. Um, I've really gained so much. Uh, thank you, Susan. My pleasure, Sarah. And thank you for listening.